Amen and amen. As we move into chapter 5 of Matthew, we get into a wonderful section of Scripture, uh, and it's a well-known portion of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. And it will cover all of chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the longest teaching of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. And you recall, if you were with us last week as we finished chapter 4, that Jesus was led into the Judean wilderness He was tempted of Satan, and he would then, after the temptation, would go to Nazareth, where according to Luke chapter 4, he went into the synagogue, and and that was the village, Nazareth, up in the Galilee region, where he was brought up. And he did a reading as he was in the synagogue from Isaiah chapter 61 that read that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and to heal the brokenhearted. It was a passage of Scripture that pertained to the coming Messiah. And as he closed the book, he would then say, Today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they got very upset, and they rejected him, and they were actually hostile to him. He would leave that area of Nazareth. He would then go to Capernaum, that area around the Sea of Galilee, where great multitudes, now as he's begun his public ministry are coming out to see Jesus. As we end at chapter 4, he's healing them of all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. He's freeing the demoniacs. There is anywhere from from 20,000 people on any given day that are pressed into that area where Jesus is ministering. So as we pick it up now in chapter 5 and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. As Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on a mountain, a hill, and he sits down, and his disciples come to him, and he begins to teach them. As we read in verse 2 now, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now notice that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and disciples discipline ones. It literally means a learner. And as I mentioned this, it's important for us to understand Uh, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples because I can hear over and over again those who will say, well, I'm a Christian and and I am saved and I'm going to go to heaven because I agree with the sayings of Jesus. I believe and embrace the Sermon on the Mount and, and I'm a good person and I try to follow and practice the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to remember that this is not a sermon and how you are to be good and good enough to make it to heaven, to earn salvation. Because we know that the scripture is very, very clear that none of us can be good enough to make it to heaven. The salvation comes by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, as Romans chapter 3 declares to us. So as we come to him and surrender our lives to him as we realize we need to be forgiven and he's the one the son of god who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave and lord i now come to you and surrender my life to you i believe in you jesus is going to to say here um, that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees and i'm sure that the disciples when they heard that that they must have thought well who can be possibly do that? Who can be more righteous than the religious leaders? No one is more righteous than them. But what Jesus is going to be getting at in this sermon is the heart. 
what is in our hearts, the condition of the heart. I can't do these things that Jesus is going to be saying here about forgiving uh, my enemy and turning the other cheek and to be exceedingly glad when you're persecuted. I can't do these things unless the Lord is working in my heart and I am submitted to him in my life, to the Savior Jesus Christ. So the Sermon on the Mount really shows us how much we need Jesus working in our lives, how we need him in our hearts. We need to be born again. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, as we read, and sits and will begin to teach his disciples. Now, in those days, a rabbi, a teacher, would stand and proclaim and preach truth. But then they would sit down to teach or to instruct, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He begins in what is called the Beatitudes. It's from the Latin, which means happy. Eight of these Beatitudes were blessed are those. Uh, you know, blessed are they is what he's going to say, which means how happy. We know as we go through the uh, scriptures, for example, Psalm 32, bless is the man whose sins are forgiven. And Psalm 33, bless are happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. We saw just a couple Wednesdays ago, Jeremiah chapter 17, blesses the man who trusts in the Lord. So it begins here, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, by these, these beatitudes, how happy, how blessed. And the Christian should be the most blessed and joyous people uh, that there are. So Jesus, in the beatitudes, begins in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, bless, how happy, fulfilled it takes on the meeting, satisfied, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not blessed because you're poor in spirit. As we continue on, blessed are those who mourn. You're not blessed because you mourn. You are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because you will be comforted. That's the blessing. That you will be filled as you thirst and hunger for righteousness. So there is blessing in that as you come to that point, to the end of yourself, and you recognize your need for the Lord. Now, here in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There have been modern translators and others who have sought to interpret this as blessed in spirit are the poor. And that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is not talking about financial poverty. He's talking about those who realize their own spiritual poverty. He is talking about walking in humility before God with a contrite spirit. That spiritually, I am bankrupt in that I have no ability in myself to become holy or to become righteous by my own efforts and my own striving and my own works. I will be reconciled to God if I come to Jesus in faith and believing in Jesus and who he is and what he did for me to bring me to that place of forgiveness and relationship with the Father. And it wasn't based on my salvation and justification on what I did because I am bankrupt spiritually. It is based on what he did on the cross of Calvary and rising from the grave. He is the one, Jesus, that is holy and righteous, and I am not. This is not, as we go through this sermon, I'm okay and you're okay. It is I need to turn to Jesus and realize that without him, I am totally spiritually bankrupt. I have no hope. 
I am dependent upon God. To be poor in spirit is to get rid of all my pride and self-reliance and self-centeredness, and I completely yield to God for salvation in my life presently. Then yours is the kingdom of God. And the problem with a lot of people that we know around us that maybe perhaps you work alongside of and you live by, maybe in your own families, they think that they can become spiritual or religious or righteous or theirs is the kingdom of God on their own. That we can become wealthy spiritually if we just do enough good and we need to humble ourselves and we need to come to Christ Surrender to him, call out to Christ, abide in Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Now, don't think that, that blessed are the poor in spirit, that the Bible is telling us that we're completely worthless. Again, the high school, I was looking at the, the theme of it, and it's worth, that's one word, worth. You are valuable to the Lord. You are so valuable to God the Father sent His Son freely, and the Son came freely and went to the cross to die for you because of His love for you, because you are very precious to God. So there is a way for us to come to Him and have relationship and fellowship with Him, but we can't come on our own merit. It is through Jesus Christ who provided a way to the Father. And as we continue in, ble- in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you realize that you are a sinner and you mourn over your sin, the Lord will come to you and he will come to me and bring comfort to us. The Lord will begin to strengthen us. And and as I turn my life completely to you, Lord, I get to experience that, that eternal life and then also life abundantly. The Christian has eternal life that is promised to us, but he also wants us to live that blessed life, that abundant life. And so to mourn over sin, it's not just sorrow over consequences that we're experiencing because of sin. It is to be godly sorrow, which then produces repentance that leads to salvation. That's what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow, uh, you know, mourning which causes you to turn to Jesus, to repent. Now, worldly sorrow that Paul talks about produces excuses Uh, and it it produces well i sinned because of this and it's their fault in this circumstance and and or it may come to well it's no big deal to to wink at sin make excuses for sin you know we need to come to that place where we mourn that that sin has separated us from god my sin has hurt the heart of god It has cost God his son. It should cause a mourning that is in our spirit. One of the things that we talked about on Wednesday night going through Jeremiah is that as Christians, we should hate sin. We don't hate the sinner, but we hate sin. What it does, what it does to our kids, what it does to our families, what it does to our nation, that we are to hate sin because it's destructive. It's defeating. It brings death. So those who mourn are going to be comforted. In verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek speaks of a self-control and genuine humility. Uh, We look at the life of Moses in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It tells us he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was not weak. I mean, Moses, I think, had one of the most difficult ministries that I see 
in all of scripture, he pastored two and a half million people for 40 years. They didn't have a church building. They were out there in a hot, dry desert, and they weren't always nice to Moses. They would come against him and murmur and complain. And he wasn't weak. He was meek. He was strong. He was strong in the Lord. And, and meekness is power uh, under control. Jesus, when he gave his only autobiographical description of his personality, he said that I am meek and lowly in heart. And Jesus, by no means was he weak. He stood up to those religious leaders. He went in and he cleansed the temple, not once but twice, and publicly rebuked those religious leaders and said that you have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And I believe that the person who realizes that they are poor in spirit, they mourn over sin, they will find themselves being meek, not arrogant, not prideful and self-glorying, but meek, being strong with humility for the Lord. And in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And my prayer for every single one of us is that we would hunger and thirst to know him more to draw closer to him, especially in this time that we are in. Because I believe that a lot of us, we go through days, we go through seasons, uh, you know, during especially the last couple months, uh, maybe it's day after day, maybe it's at different times, where we just hunger and we thirst. And I pray that it would be a hunger and thirst to walk with the Lord, to know him more, to draw closer to him. The psalmist would write in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, oh Lord, may my soul thirst for you, for you the living God. And I believe again that there are many people that we know that are around us that they hunger and thirst in their souls because they haven't come to know the one who is truly righteous, the one who will satisfy them and bless them and fulfill them in their hearts and in their souls. Jesus would say that I am the bread of life and believe in me. And he who comes to me shall never hunger and who believes in me shall never thirst. We know that Jesus would stand there in Jerusalem at the temple and he would cry out, that come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come and drink of me for out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water. That he would Say to that Samaritan woman that I have living water to give to you. We know that Isaiah in chapter 55 would declare, Ho, everyone thirst, come to the waters. That was the message of the Lord to a nation that was thirsty and barren and dry because they had forsaken the Lord. Come and drink of the waters freely. Why do you buy uh, for that which cost? Come to me, the Lord was saying. And then at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. You see, if we pursue and prioritize things other than just being close to the Lord and intimacy with the Lord, you will end up being hungry and thirsty in your soul. But as you prioritize and you keep before you every day, living for the Lord, drawn close to him, knowing him, yielded to him, man, you're going to be filled. So the question for all of us here this morning is to ask ourselves, what are you hungry for? And what do you thirst for? Is it self? Is it the world? Is it pleasure? 
Those things are going to cause you eventually to be thirsty and hungry in your heart. It won't satisfy you. Because true spiritual satisfaction and fulfillment comes by having a hunger and thirst for the Lord and to live for Him. And in verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I, I really believe that once you're filled with God's love and comfort and forgiveness, you will find yourself being merciful to others. You're not going to be always cynical and negative and critical towards others. You're not going to be walking around pointing fingers at others. And, and I, I really believe that the person who is close to the Lord and abiding in Jesus will be merciful. Because you understand how merciful the Lord has been to you. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. And here's the truth of Scripture. What all of us deserve is hell. Because we're sinners. And because of his love and great mercy, and because of his grace, the unmerited favor of God, and because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are not going to get what we deserve but we are going to receive eternal life and we're not going to be judged. That is, judged to condemnation. But we are going to be ones that we have eternal life because of his great love and, and grace and mercy. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit. And I think that Christians that tend to be very harsh and unforgiving and critical and judgmental have forgotten how merciful God has been to them, how he has forgiven us, how much he's forgiven us, how he has saved us, how God shows compassion towards us, and as we really live in that and understand that more and more, we'll be more merciful to others. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The scripture talks about having a clean heart and a pure heart. And all of us that have embraced the Lord and come to the cross at Calvary have experienced the cleansing of the Lord. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, a familiar verse to many of us, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. But as we journey through life, there are those times that and, and, you know, our hearts get dirtied and stained because of sin and rotten attitudes and bitterness and anger, whatever the case may be. And our hearts may lust or become greedy and I need the cleansing of my heart because it has become polluted I need to turn to God confess my sin uh, present my heart to him Lord search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me just as David did to be cleansed uh, to be cleansed with the water of the word Jesus said be clean with the words which I have spoken to you in John chapter 15 a pure heart is one that isn't dirty and polluted and stained by sins or other things of the world. You desire to live in purity, and God has called us to purity. You are to be holy just as I am holy, to pursue purity in our lives. And we do that as we enjoy great intimacy and closeness with the Lord. And as you do, your heart won't be polluted. 
And I don't think any of us, I know for me, I can't claim to have an absolutely pure heart, but a pure heart is a heart that is set on the Lord daily, consistently. You see the Lord clearly. You want to please him with your life and with your thoughts. You're not desiring to be polluted and stained with the things of the world. It was Paul that that told Timothy, Timothy, you minister, you live with a pure heart and sincere faith and a good conscience. So blessed are us as we read this. Pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus, he is our peace. He's the only true peacemaker. And, And he has provided for us to have peace with God, and then as we live for him, peace, you know, the peace of God that is in our hearts. So therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And then as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God to those who believe on his name. And then we are peacemakers as we get to bring people to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The one who can bring peace with God as they come to him, believe in him, and the peace of God as he dwells in their hearts. He's given us the opportunity as we are now the ones that have uh, the spirit of adoption where we can cry out, Abba, Father, because we're sons and daughters of the living God, children of God. What a joy to see family and, and others that give their lives to Jesus because you told them about the gospel. You told them about Jesus. Or because the way that you're living your life, they came to you and say, there's peace in your life. There's something different about you. You're not of this world. I I see that. I desire that. And you you get the opportunity through your witness in your life to be able to tell them about Jesus. You're a peacemaker because you bring them to the Prince of Peace. And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I read this and I read about, you know, be exceedingly glad when they persecute you, revile you, and I think be exceedingly glad. It's hard enough to be just a little glad. And he says, for righteousness' sake, not for your sake, not because you're being weird or obnoxious and, and things like that. You know, you're putting tracks in, you know, co-workers' sandwich, you know, that uh, when they eat lunch, they're they're bite into this track i heard that once and you know there's mayonnaise and mustard all over the track and you know these guys trying to eat his lunch and you know you're going to go to hell unless you repent <laughs> you know there's it's not just doing weird things like that it is for righteousness sake happy are you blessed are you who are aware of your own poverty of spirit who mourn over sin you are meek and you hunger and thirst for righteousness you desire to have a pure heart for the lord you want to show mercy and, and be a peacemaker. And I know that if that has taken place in my heart, I will be happy. And, and with you, and blessed are you when you are persecuted. Because you are going to know that the Lord is working. 
We know that we are going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And people will come against us, you and me, in different degrees of persecution in different ways. And we know that Christians are being persecuted all throughout the world. Matter of fact, I was hearing a story that um, in Iran, there was uh, 20-some families that were taken and they were killed. They were persecuted just recently in the last couple months. And that's the kind of persecution that is seen, you know, but yet the fastest growing church is in Iran. So people will speak evil of us and we will experience trouble when we stand for Jesus. People will revile you and me. They will insult us and speak of their displeasure with us. So we need to understand that that will take place because the world hates us. Jesus said the world loves its own, yet because you are not of this world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. The world hates you, and a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So Jesus told us this will happen to us. But he also wants us to know this, that great will be your reward in heaven. And I think that many of us can say, that it's not easy to rejoice when people speak evil of us, about us, when they revile us. I know that. There have been days when I felt like a big target. You know, sometimes young guys say, I want to get in ministry, and the first thing I want to do is put a big target on their back and say, get used to it. And our natural tendency is to be resentful, to be negative when that happens, bitter. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, then I'm just going to keep quiet next time. I'm going to compromise. And Jesus said, we're not to compromise. We're not to complain. We're to rejoice with that. We're going to see on Wednesday, when we continue in the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah, that he's going to say, they're persecuting me, and I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to be quiet. But then Jeremiah says that the word of God burned in my heart. I, I couldn't keep quiet. We know that Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5 were beaten by the religious council, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. And they continued in the temple and from house to house preaching Jesus. Jesus. That's an amazing you know, statement of the early apostles, that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. I want to be more like that. And of course, there are times where we're going to need to be comforted and strengthened by the Lord when we are persecuted by others. But remember that we can rejoice because God sees us and he will reward us in heaven. In verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So what does Jesus mean by we're the salt of the world? Well, as we think about salt, in Jesus' day, salt was actually a very valuable commodity. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt, which gives rise to the saying, worth his salt. Jesus is telling us that we are valuable we're valuable if you you know in this world for the kingdom for the lord to do his work but also as we think about salt we know that salt will make you thirsty you, you eat salty chips food french fries you get parched you, you need to drink something and as people watch us you know live and work 
out these beatitudes in our lives as we live for him when people see that you and I are truly happy and satisfied and fulfilled and have peace in our hearts it will make others around you thirsty for Jesus Christ who gives us living water people hopefully around us will say hey there's something about you that creates a thirst in me for what you have and what you enjoy but also salt in those days were used as a preservative. They, they lacked vacuum-sealed packaging and refrigeration. And so if you were to butcher an animal, the portion that you didn't roast right away would have to be heavily salted. The salt would kill the surface bacteria and acted as a preservative, keeping the meat from rotting. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, to us, that you are to preserving influence in the world in which you live. And I think we really don't realize as Christians just how much influence that we have in keeping this world from just becoming completely rotten and corrupt and evil. Matter of fact, we know 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, then when that which is taken out of the way which restrains, then the Antichrist will come on the scene. And I believe he's talking about the church. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, and not only to promote thirst and preserve, you know, but also it was used in keeping infections from spreading. Maybe at one time your, your mom, your grandmother told you to gargle with salt water when you had a sore throat. So salt brings healing, and as Christians, we can bring healing to those who have been deeply infected by sadness and sorrow and sin. We get to tell them about Jesus, point to Jesus, and Jesus went on to say that if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Then it's good for nothing. And what I hope and pray is that we are salt in our homes, having a godly influence there. Moms, that you continue in your important ministry, ministering to your kids, grandmothers, dads, grandpas, whoever that you are, and the people that are linked to you in your life, that you live for the Lord. They see that you are blessed by the Lord, and they are influenced by that. They develop a thirst for Jesus, and as you pray for them, you talk with them about the Lord, that you would realize that you are a preserving influence, and you provide healing. And I hope that our family 